Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Mark Hemingway. Uh, he's been with us before. Uh, he was a senior writer at the Weekly Standard for many years, and his work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Washington Examiner, uh, before joining Real Clear Investigations uh, not, not too long ago. He is with us to discuss the state of investigative journalism in America today. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, I, I, I was going to start by asking you about the, the, uh, a recent development this week. But let me do a general question. Real clear investigations. Did you join them right at the beginning? Um, no. Uh, you know, I think they've been around for a while when I joined. Um, I think they were, you know, relatively new. Um, they haven't been around forever. You know, it's a good question. I don't know exactly know what year they started up. But, you know, it's the last five or ten years. I, I didn't seem to notice them until a few years ago. Maybe that's just because of what's happened to investigative journalism in the United States. But let me just say, is Real Clear's role to be a, a curator, simply a, a purveyor of journalism, or is it an arbiter of others' work? Or how much uh, uh, original work does Real Clear do? Um, in the case of Real Clear Investigations, they do a fair bit. Yeah, I mean, they do have a, an aggregation portal like a lot of the other real clear sites where they will aggregate other investigative reporting. Sure. Yeah. But uh, no, I mean, they have a, you know, a number of full-time investigative reporters on staff that do nothing but um, investigate. And uh, you know, the, the head of, of the real clear investigations, a guy named Tom Koontz, who was the New York times for decades, you know, doing among other things, investigative work. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty serious. Um, and you know, they've really made a name for themselves in part because, um, you know, the field's so wide open for investigative journalism these days because, you know, the media's become a total monoculture. Um, and, uh, you know, we the Real Clear Investigations in particular has had a number of huge stories right. relating to the Ru Russia investigation because the regular media is just not um, interested in, you know, covering uh, the Trump-Russia collusion stuff, you know, since it blew up in their faces. And there's a lot more to be learned about it. Um, and, you know, what's also interesting, though, is that you know, a number of the pieces, you know, some of our best investigative we've worked have been, we published on the Russia investigation, has been from reporters that are, you know, pretty far left, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this, this isn't a situation where, you know, um, you know, where we're grinding an axe at all. It's just, you know, there's a whole lot of investigative stories out there that aren't being reported on because the media is just, you know, one giant sort of center left Borg that, you know, doesn't care about stories that would, you know, you know, shine a light on sort of, you know, Democratic Party corruption, among other things. Is it uh, another factor? Is is it that we'll get into the bias issue, but is another factor the, the expense 
Investigative reporting is kind of expensive, right? You got to invest in a story. Someone has to go dig for quite a while before you might get any material and you may come up with uh, nothing, right? Yeah, no, that's a huge part of it too. Um, you know, I published, you know, my, I published one story so far this year. Now it was a huge story, but you know, it was you know, well over, you know, two, two months of solid reporting before I got to the place where I could even begin to publish it. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, back in the day when, business models for media um, organizations and print media and stuff hadn't completely collapsed. There was a lot of money floating around when they could, you know, do that in the New York times, these big publications could, you know, have dozens of people on staff that, you know, publish something every six months um, that was, you know, big and comprehensive, you know, these days, all of the journalism business models are related to, you know, internet journalism and how many clicks you get. And that business model rewards basically like, you know, quantity over quality, um, you know, times a thousand. Um, so yes, a lot of traditional venues for investigative reporting have have dried up in addition to sort of the, you know, cultural, um, you know, professional problems in, in the newsroom. Well, it's, it's odd when you, when you realize that, you know, the, in terms of the expense factor, uh, you know, the Atlantic now has what Steve Jobs widow is backing the Atlantic that they're not hurting for money. And, and certainly uh, the Washington Post uh, with their owner, they're not hurting for money. Uh, there we can see the bias right. factor. <laughs> right. But I mean, the you know, billionaires like that aren't buying publications, you know, to make them better. Right. Yeah. Um, they're buying them to purchase a certain degree of influence. And of course, they don't want the publication to lose too much money on top of that, you know. But um, yeah, it would be nice if somebody out there, um, you know, real clear investigations take donations. Um, you know, we're willing to invest in this kind of stuff because there's a lot of damage that can be done. Um, you know, um, you know, a lot of accountability that can be brought to bear if people were willing to fund these efforts. Um, but you know, just it's 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 a it's a tough road to hoe. Let me get to an issue that I that I hinted at earlier. Just this week, we're recording. You know, in in at the end of April here, right now. Uh, just this week, the Biden uh, administration announced a new disinformation governance board. Have you followed that development? Oh yeah. <laughs> can I can you just why don't you just introduce uh, what 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 we've heard so far? I mean, well, um, so they announced the creation of an office to basically address you know disinformation issues um, within the Department of Homeland Security issues. Um, and they announced the woman who's heading up this office, whose name completely, completely escapes me at this point in time is, I, I just, I'm just sort of shocked that this got this far. Um, I, I don't know how to describe her. Um, you know, she's been an, obviously a fixture in Washington as a graduate of Georgetown and some other things and has been very active in sort of the disinformation space, uh, in, in good and bad ways. Um, she, you know, obviously speaking out against disinformation um, professionally in sort of the, I don't know, the Washington sort of think tank complex for a long time. But it's also true that she had a Twitter account and an active social media presence where, you know, she was basically regurgitating standard, you know, Democratic Party talking points. You know, she was very enthusiastically promoting the idea that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. And, yeah. You know, um, and then on top of that, she's just kind of personally embarrassing she used to have this like Harry Potter, um, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like Harry Potter um, musical act where she and a friend would sing all these songs that they wrote about Harry Potter. And, like, some of them were erotic. 
Um, I mean, it's, it's like these clips, you just have to see them to be believed. I mean, this woman and that, you know, she's just, uh, a real piece of work. Um, and so already, um, we have a situation here where we've created what, you know, I would call big disinformation, um, because it has become very much in the media and the democratic party's interest to go out there and say that any narratives out there that are destroying the the media's um credibility or they're you know horning in on you know their competition um uh or are hurting democrats chances at the ballot box that well that's disinformation so you've seen all these stories in recent years you know whether it was mostly peaceful protests during the riots in 2020 or you know the lab leak theory where you get kicked off of social media for saying that you know the coronavirus um, you know, likely originated in a lab, you know, you did the Hunter Biden's laptop stuff and all this stuff, they come out and it's very inconvenient for people to talk about this stuff politically. And so they declare it disinformation. And then a year later, of course, we, we find out it was true all along and pretty much everybody knew it was true all along. It's just that, you know, these gatekeepers in, in social media and social media platforms and, and the media itself are very much vested in, in declaring these things disinformation. So the idea that the government is now officially getting into disinformation business already after we have a situation where social media platforms have been banning people, you know, en masse for years for saying true things um, is really a frightening development. And people are mocking it as, you know, Biden's ministry of truth. And they have yeah. every right to be both worried about it and to be derisive about it. Her, her name is Nina Jankowitz. I think that's, yes, that's CZ, right. it ends CZ. Uh, but yeah, the, the videos of her uh, singing these songs, uh, doing, a, doing a spoof of Mary Poppins, but she kind of really means it. Uh, that is being, they're, they're, they're going all over Twitter and, and, and they're on the cable news uh, shows Laura Ingram and elsewhere. And you, you think, didn't you guys vet this at all? Uh, and the idea that, you, you know, one of Jordan Peterson's points uh, about censorship is that one of the problems with censorship or, or any kind of office that monitors speech, hate speech, or threatening speech is that the people who end up making the decisions in those kinds of offices are the last people you want to have that kind of power. Uh, there, there's something appealing to the wrong kind of personality about being able to make those those kinds of decisions. I mean, I imagine you and I, we wouldn't feel really comfortable being making that that determination of this this flies, this doesn't. I mean, has anyone ever has anyone ever run one of these offices? Or, or I mean, I would add this, you know, these these human rights uh, commissions at the state level. Uh, these 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 don't seem like liberal people. Uh, in in the broadest sense of the word. No, I think that's exactly right. And and when I talked about big disinformation before, like what I'm worried about, those I mean, we've created like you know actual you know think tanks and programs and all this other stuff dedicated to rooting out disinformation. And like these are people that like have an incentive to like go out and find disinformation, you know, to justify their own existence, you know, which is gonna you know this is already causing a lot of people to go out and and declare that there's disinformation where it doesn't exist. Um, and more than that, though, like with the concentration of, 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 of news onto the Internet and the distribution channels controlled very tightly, you end up with some you know, really insane things happening. So like when I worked at the Weekly Standard, 
much to my chagrin and actually against my sort of protest, I've written about this. Uh, the Weekly Standard decided to participate in um, Facebook's fact-checking program. So what this meant was the Facebook was literally paying the Weekly Standard money for, for a full-time employee who would work as a fact-checker um, to um, fact-check stories. And we hired this young kid, very diligent guy, you know, not at all, you know, dumb or anything, and I, you know, uh, but, you know, he was only like 24 years old. You know, he only knew so much. Hmm. Um, and the reality was, is, and I'm not making this up. I mean, this is how the Facebook fact-checking program works. We had like one guy on staff doing this. You know, a lot of the stuff he did was, was hardly vetted or even edited before it was thrown up on the Internet. He would do a fact check, and then he would you know, enter that fact check into the back end of Facebook. And then according to – because Facebook's such a large platform, according to Facebook's own, um, own internal press release – not internal, own press releases, when, when a fact check was entered as false um, into Facebook's system, they would throttle the traffic to that story, and then Facebook bragged that they would kill 80% of the global Internet traffic to that story. So I had one 24-year-old guy in my office who had the power to like pick a news story at random and say 80% of global Internet traffic can't come to that story anymore. It's huh. just going to die off. I mean, and when you think about that kind of stuff happening, I mean, it's just absolutely terrifying. Um, you know, and, you know, now I don't know how many dozens of publications participate in Facebook's fact-checking program, but, I, you know, I know for a fact that, you know, it's not like this is a, you know, a big concerted endeavor that these, these publications are, you know, they're just not taking that seriously, and yet stuff gets banned all the time. Do we know how the, this governance board, how the federal government is going to get into this? I mean, will, will they then identify some disinformation and then send it out to Google and all the media companies and say, hey, flag this. Well, I can't even imagine they have direct authority to do anything. You know, I think they would get sued you know, 10 ways from Sunday in the First Amendment if they tried to do something direct. But yes, can they go to, you know, the, are they on speed dial with Google or Facebook or whatever? And, you know, hey, we flagged this. You guys should look at it. Yeah, you bet they can. Um, and I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if... Google's and looking at the people that are in charge of regulating them and, and saying, oh, you know, and, and it has an incentive to please them. I mean, it's a horrible arrangement. So y y your, your, your unwillingness to help Facebook with this when you were at the Weekly Standard, does that mean that you don't think any conservatives or libertarians, really, should, should try to get on this board? Even if they're invited, say no, don't get involved, shun the whole project? I would, I think so. I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the whole thing should be completely disbanded and, you know, shot out of a cannon, frankly. Um, yeah, I, there, I don't well, there's it. always the argument, well, it, it'll be better if we have a seat at the table. And I, I don't buy that. <laughs> I no. just don't. I think what you're no. doing is giving them cover, uh, in fact, for, for, for what they're doing. Um, so, well, we'll see what, I, I mean, I, I think it, I think it's a political blunder, major blunder, especially I, with her being the face of it. I, I think absolutely um, that's the case as well. Um, the Biden administration just seems to not know what the heck it's doing at all. Um, but I think it's also true, though, that, you know, there is, you know, Democratic elites 
um, are definitely in some kind of bubble. I mean, they really genuinely believe that the reason why they're foundering politically and culturally in key ways right now is simply because ordinary Americans just don't understand the truth, right? They understood how much Russia was trying to, you know, overthrow our democracy. They would want a disinformation czar. I mean, these people really believe that, you know, but the problem is, is that, again, they've been getting high in their own supply for years. I mean, you know, there's so many people in this town um, that honestly believe, you know, are still arguing vehemently that, you know, Donald Trump colluded with Russia in a treasonous plot to steal an election in 2016. You know, they, they you know, it's, it's, it's really quite incredible how they just, they haven't been getting any sort of, you know, the information system in this country has become so asymmetric. You know, yeah. if I want to know what liberals are thinking, I turn on CNN for five seconds. Yeah. You know, um, you know, the, you know, Democratic congressmen are not, you know, reading, subscribing to the Claremont Review of Books or first things, yeah. you know, to understand what people on the right are thinking. So, um, you know, we see it from both sides and, and, and they just it's gotten to a point where um, it's like the Chinese government has this thing called internal reference publications. The Chinese government pub, pumps out so much propaganda and they do it knowingly that their their actual top leaders in the country have to have reliable information. And they can't just rely on what the government is saying publicly, <laughs> right? So they, they have their own publications that print actual news that are separate from what the public is given. Huh. And like the, in, in the U.S., we've created our own internal reference publications, and they're known as the media, right? <laughs> uh, um, if you're just reading like legacy corporate media in this country, you are dramatically disinformed, dramatically malinformed on, on many, many subjects. So um, and I think that's what's going on right now with Democratic decision making, you know, in the Biden administration. They just don't get it. You know, they have people around them in this bubble screaming, we've got to do something about disinformation. So they've appointed disinformation czar without realizing that the public, you know, sees it from both sides. And is so shocked that this is happening that they're just spiraling into this, you know, out of control situation. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Okay, on, on Real Clear, you mentioned some of, the, some of the really good stories Real Clear has done, some of them original stories. Have the news media picked up those stories and, and broadcast um, them? <laughs> I mean... Yes and no. Um, it's had a definite impact, right? Um, but, you know, like I said, the legacy media is so in the tank on so many of these stories. Um, so you end up with these situations here where, like, for instance, Real Clear Investigations uh, identified the whistleblower um, in the Trump impeachment. Um, and yeah. uh, this was a big deal because the media was refusing en masse. Even Fox News was refusing en masse to name the guy, even though he wasn't actually a whistleblower. It's kind of a convoluted story to go into, but like, you know, formal federal whistleblower rules did not apply to this guy at all. There was no reason not to name him 
um, particularly since it turned out that the guy had previously worked for Joe Biden, which was, you know, just a huge red flag anyway. Um, so the media danced around this thing where they had to deal with the fact that we had reported the guy and who he was and details about him, but they weren't um, saying his name and other things like that. They were trying to simultaneously deal with the fallout from what we had reported while still trying to stuff the genie back in the bottle. Um, and so you see that a lot with a lot of these inconvenient stories where they're like, they have to deal with it but at the same time. They're like trying to pretend it doesn't exist, which is just a really weird way of, of happening things, but a really weird way of dealing with things. Um, but sometimes stuff just, uh, you know, uh, completely goes, uh, I, I've reported a number of things that, you know, I've, you know, I'm not saying woe is me or anything like that. I've just basically gotten used to it. Um, you know, in February of 2020, I reported that the FBI invaded, uh, sorry, invaded, FBI raided a business that was run by Joe Biden's brother um, for corruption issues. Um, and, you know, again, this is in the middle of a presidential campaign. Uh, the brother, the, the, Joe, the president, the soon to be president's brother, being raided by the FBI and literally crickets. I think a political yeah. reporter mentioned it like two months later and it like it didn't spell out in the major media at all. Um, just uh, in the beginning of March, I reported that Stefan Halper, a Cambridge professor who was the, um, who was the main confidential human source in the crossfire hurricane investigation, which was the main confidential human source in the FBI's investigation of Trump, where they were, you know, and they were using his information to get warrantless wiretaps to spy on the Trump campaign. I reported that this guy has been lying on his resume for 50 years about things, including graduating from Oxford, apparently. Hmm. Um, he, you know, claimed he had a, was a Fulbright scholar. The Fulbright organization never heard of him. He hmm. claimed he was senior class president of Stanford. Uh, he was, I got copies of the yearbook. He was not senior class president of Stanford. He, you know, claimed he worked in, his, in the chief of staff's office in the Ford administration for three years under Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Alexander Haig. And it turns out that, no, he was a drone at OMB almost that entire time. Huh. Um, and, you know, you'd think this would be a big story, right? The FBI's main source they used to spy on the president is, is a chronic liar going back, you know, 50 plus years. Um, and again, you know, crickets. Um, yeah. It's really, but you know, the story did have a very positive impact. Um, you know, I you know know I know for a fact that all kinds of influential people saw it, and you know, it, it it's going to ripple through and have an effect. But it's just you know, you have to have different metrics for this stuff anymore right. because the media is so skewed; they just are totally uninterested in inconvenient facts and stories. In one piece recently at Rio Clear, you actually argued that the media's problems in recent times really come from class issues more than from political bias. What was your argument there? Well, I was actually I was reviewing a book for by um, Bacha Unger Sargon, yeah. um, who is this other journalist who's, who makes that argument in her book. And I, you know, I, I will say that you know, I have thought, thought about this myself, um, but her book was excellent, and I don't want to like, shortchange the, you know, the, the the force and, and uh, you know, originality, which she made the argument. But, you know, over the course of my career in journalism, I started in journalism in the late 90s. And uh, I think I got my first real journalism job in 1999. And it's really remarkable how much the industry has changed since then. I mean, it was changing then. But, you know, when I first started, it really was much more of a working class profession. You know, people smoked in newsrooms, you know. Hmm. They kept a bottle of, you know, you know, liquor in their desk you know they they you know had very 
they, they didn't approach journalism as sort of a means to an end. Now, of course, they're always sort of, you know, the media was coming more corporate at the same time. And yes, there were sort of, there was a sort of up and coming yuppie influence, but it's become so dominant anymore, you know. So like one of my first editors when I was a journalist who I learned a lot from was a guy named John Corey, who worked in New York Times for like 35 years or something insane. Um, and he started out running scores from the track in Long Island to the sports desk when he was a teenager. And, you know, <laughs> wait, he, wait, he, he didn't go he, to Columbia School of Journalism. <laughs> exactly. No. Uh, well, forget I him. I don't think John ever even graduated from college. <laughs> um, I'm not making this up. Yeah. He was yeah. one of the smartest guys I've ever known. But, you know, you read the New York Times every day and you get in that milieu, you're going to end up a pretty smart guy. And he was terrific. And I learned so much from him. But, like, you know, all of a sudden, it seemed like, you know, 10 years later, you would look around and everyone in the newsroom, like you say, they have a, an MFA in creative nonfiction from Columbia and they're all from, you know, wealthy families and they just have this completely aberrant like life experience and like worse than that they saw journalism as like a stepping stone to like something else it's always yeah. like how can i leverage what i'm doing for my own personal benefit rather than just seeing it as sort of a working class trade where you know you show up and you do your job and you go home yeah i mean in a way um, if, I, if you you know those those those, those guys uh they said no one's gonna own me Okay, I, I go after yeah. it wherever. I don't care who you are. You, you're you're in power, uh, Democrat or Republican. You're you're my meat. Uh, that that seemed right. to be the attitude of, of of the investigative journalists then. The, these these ones they they make the political calculation. It seems. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. Um, you know, they the old old journalists. You know, I should have expressed this a little better. They saw. Um, the people in power as being, you know, um, as being sort of naturally predatory on the people that were not in power, right? You know, ordinary citizens. Um, and it didn't matter whether they were Democrats, or Republicans, it just mattered that they were in power, right? So it was their job to sort of protect the little guy from the people that had the power. Um, and that was sort of how it was viewed. Now, there are problems, of course, with that approach for a variety of reasons. And I would say the media always skewed left. But um, it was it was a much sort of healthier attitude in terms of being suspect of power, whereas now, like, there's no suspect. They're not suspect of power at all, um, it, provided the right people are in power. Yeah. Um, so, like, just in last week, we saw this Washington Post story where the Washington Post ran an article saying that Elon Musk had targeted two Twitter employees for harassment <laughs> because he had tweeted about them. And like one of the people that he tweeted, um, well, first of all, he didn't say anything about it specifically at all. Um, he just, she just said that it was a mistake for Twitter to ban New York, to ban the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story. Yeah. Um, and this woman was the driving force behind, you know, banning that story. And, you know, oh, yes, I realize Elon Musk is very powerful. I realize he's the richest man in the world. But the, the Twitter lawyer that he was going after lives in San Francisco and makes $17 million a year working for Twitter. Important. Like, and, and the media look at a woman like that that makes $17 million a year, and they see her as their, their class counterpart and say that, oh, she needs to be protected. Now, the real issue here is, and I realize that Elon, you know, I don't look to Elon Musk as my champion of this. The real issue here is that a woman who makes $17 million a year took it upon herself to censor the news from ordinary people. Yeah. But she's the one that needs to be protected as far as the media is concerned. You know, uh, does ha has this situation really 
caused the investigative ethos to deteriorate. And I, I mean things like reporters who are much less wary now of being manipulated by sources. Reporters that, that don't really get out there on the sidewalk and go talk to people face to face. Is this happening? Are, I, are, is this, not only is this happening, it is happening to a degree that like should be shocking. I mean, it should make people want to like burn down newsrooms and salt the earth where they stand. I mean, so the Durham investigation into the Trump-Russia affair in recent months has been releasing emails. So somehow it's come out as part of a lawsuit. A lot of the communications that journalists had with, um, you know, Fusion GPS, which was the, you know, the sort of shadowy um, investigative slash PR firm, whatever that was working with the Democratic Party and pushing the whole Russia dossier stuff. And like one of the things that just came out was Frank Four, who um, famously published this story about how a server in Trump Tower was communicating with a Russian bank right before the election. Um, the story was quickly debunked. But the story, as is, is, is we now know, is, 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 it's come out that the story was completely fed to him basically by Fusion GPS in the, in the Trump campaign, in the Clinton campaign. And he just like went ahead and regurgitated this. And we just saw this email this week where when he wrote this up the story, he, he would, when he wrote up one of his stories um, um, that was you know basically fed to him, he sent it back to Fusion GPS and was like, tell me what you guys think of this. Huh. You know, you know, he basically gives them approval to like rewrite his story. Now, Mark, um, if this were if this were 1972, this guy would never work again, would he? I mean, as a, as a top investigative, a top journalist, would he? Correct. Yes. No. I mean, this guy's name would be mud, not even 19. I mean, if this were 20 years ago. This guy's name would have been mud and he never would have worked again. But bear in mind that this Frank Four had already been editor-in-chief of the New Republic and basically yeah. running into the ground with a major scandal. Um, he screws this up, and after this whole scandal with the um, Hillary Clinton campaign feeding him stories, he just got hired like a year or so ago to be a permanent staff writer at The Atlantic. I mean, like, the thing is, is, again, these people see themselves not as people whose job it is to get out the truth. They see themselves as foot soldiers in a political cause. And if you look at what Frank Ford did, he was a hell of a foot soldier, right? Terrible journalist, but a hell of a foot soldier for advancing into the cause of getting Democrats elected. And so he gets rewarded by the by you know a prestigious media gig. You know there there are so many more things to talk about. <laughs> and then what uh, what I'll what I'll do is direct readers. I think they should have real clear investigations on their on their morning uh, with, with their morning coffee uh, just to just to check things out. But for now, that that will do. Uh, the Again, the website is realclearinvestigations.com. Mark Hemingway, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.